Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have Andrew Wall, the Sandler franchisee from Milton in Canada. Andrew, thank you for coming. Welcome. Marcus, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Would you mind giving the audience a very quick 30-second to one-minute overview of who you are and your background, please? I've been selling for the last 30 years, and I've been managing people for close to the last 20. And as a Sandler training professional, we've been working with companies as unique as solo entrepreneurs up to national organizations here in Canada. And if there's one thing that we've developed over the last 13 years is a reputation for helping companies double or even greater. To do that, you need systems process structure that's in place and repeatable. And we found a method to do that with numerous clients from a variety of industries. And I'm happy to share some of those key points today with you and your audience, Marcus. Fantastic. Well, you're obviously uh, preaching to the choir here because in my experience, systems set you free. And without good planning, without good process, it's very difficult to replicate and scale. So let's start out with planning. First of all, why is it people shy away from it and do it, either avoid doing it or do it so badly? Well, you're, you're banging on there, Marcus. I don't think I've sat down with a president when they were a prospect in front of me that could share with me a written, well-structured plan. They definitely have a budget half of the time. I'd say only half of the time. But it takes effort. It takes thought. And one of the assessment tools that we use within the Divine organization, or sorry, within the Sandler organization, is the Divine Inventory. And Dr. Devine, the leader of that company, was doing a presentation where he said, if I'm sitting in front of 100 executives and ask, how many of you are strategic? I know everybody will put up your hand because that's part of your job responsibilities. But he said, folks, I have bad news for you. I've been evaluating and studying you for decades, and I know only one third of you are, are strategic. So I think that's a big part of it, Marcus, is that it's just not in a lot of people's wheelhouse. and. A lot of Canadian companies, and I'm sure this is a global situation, but it's the small entrepreneurial companies that are really driving the economy. And when the going gets rough, it's the entrepreneurial companies that rebound the economy faster than anybody else. And entrepreneurs are freewheeling and strategic business planning is not a natural activity for them. (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, there is an awful lot of opportunism and being very reactive. So tell me this. In order to put together a great plan, what's the starting point? I think the the first starting point is to make sure you're reading the book, The Road to Excellence by David Mattson, CEO of Sandler Training. It's a well-written book. It's not a tough business book. Give that to each and every member of your management team. Secondly, you've got to schedule, first of all, two full days offsite, and then follow that up by scheduling a full day offsite each subsequent quarter. Your management team needs to be offsite because if you're anywhere around your facilities, somebody will pull you into a meeting. They'll ask you a question. You'll respond to it, fire the day, and then the offsite won't work. So that's really the, the first two steps. Read the book, understand the why behind the how and the what, and then schedule those days. Make sure your team is ready to engage. Tell me this then. Very often, owners... CEOs have a loose vision. How do you help them to focus that down into something that's tangible, meaningful, but also uplifting and dream-based? 
there's no doubt that vision is the important part. I actually encourage people to start first with, with values. And the values really are of the shareholders. There can be a management team, but that business was started by a founder at some point in time. So if your business is second generation or third generation, if the founder is still alive, go back and ask them, why did you start the business? If this is your business, then starting with the values is super critical. Values are, should be how you hire people, how you evaluate people, and whether you would keep them on your team or not is how you should deal with your staff, with your customers, with your suppliers, with your partners. So getting those values identified very clear and putting them up publicly. In our business, as an example, we have our values in a painting. One of our employees is a bit artistic. And she created a painting of our values and it's in our kitchen. Whenever we have a difficult business decision we need to make, we all go meet around that poster and it becomes very clear to us what's the right decision to make. So really the first step is clarifying your values. That would be step number one. Once that's clear, then it's time to be thinking about your vision. How do you want to be known in the marketplace? What is important to you? When your clients are speaking to their friends, their business peers at events that you're not aware of, and somebody says, why do you work with that company? You want them to be able to clearly identify how you want to be known in the marketplace. For example, our business, our vision is to be the leading provider of business education in the Ontario market that allows companies and individuals to profitably grow. We're in the business of helping companies profitably grow, both personally, because the Sandler content is so rich, people's lives are going to be better, and we want their businesses to grow. And it's our focus that we want to work with people and companies that want dramatic growth, not marginal growth. Absolutely. I mean, I've been working on that process myself, and it's really tough to distill it down into something pithy. But recognizing that what we're trying to do is help ambitious owners of technology companies that are looking to scale up fast without losing control and help them to identify, engage, and convert prospective channel partners into continuous profit centers and be able to develop a strategy that allows them to maximize their growth every quarter. Trying to distill something as big as that into just a few words, that's a real challenge. How do you help people to do that? Maybe you can help me. Well, I, I would agree, Marcus. It is a bit of a mouthful, but I like to, to first of all, start thinking about 10 years out. In 10 years time, what do I want to have accomplished? What do I want the marketplace to have been thinking about our business? And when I'm working with clients, how do they want their business to be thought of? And what is a tangible goal that they can set for themselves? Things like a geographic reach, things like number of clients working with, things like number of partners working with, things like revenues or profits, whatever can be tangible that people can grab a hold of. So that's the first thing, looking that 10 years down the road. And then asking yourself, where do you want to be in the next year? And then how long will you allow yourself to double? If you choose a 25% annual growth rate, in three years, you've doubled the business. If you choose 15%, it's five years. 
So it might seem funny, but I first help people to visualize 10 years down the road, what is the significant business that you want to have created that Marketplace knows you for? And now we need to work back. What is the 12-month goal? And then how do we link the 12-month goal into doubling, three to five years? And then that doubling needs to be in line with the 10-year goal and objective. So start 10 years, then move back to what's the 12 months, and then what's your doubling objective based on growth ambitions that you've set for yourself? That makes a lot of sense. So tell me something. I mean, in the Organizational Excellence Program, we start with the plan. What are the elements of the plan that we need to have before we move on to the next step? Great question. So it starts with values. Start with values. Then you're going to move to the vision of the company. Then you're going to move to the, the mission. So I think of the mission as the how-to, right? The vision is what you want to be known for, the what. The mission is how do you get this done? Then you need to look at the external environment. As an example, just as we're doing right now and illustrating, Marcus, at least in my business, I can honestly say four years ago, I was not using technology the way we are right now. So we identified a couple of things. A, I'm getting older, my clients are getting younger, and B, technology is very in vogue with the younger folks. So we use technology like this, we do remote training. So that'd be an example of how the external environment was changing the way our business could operate, and it was up to us to decide whether we adopt the technology and invest in it, not just financially, but also in learning how to utilize it as trainers, consultants, and coaches. Once you've got that in place, then you're looking at the SWOT of your business. What are your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? So I think of the strengths as something that's internal to your business. I think weaknesses as internal to your business. Opportunities and threats are external to your business. So you know, this is not the place, in my opinion, where you're going to do a long thesis. But if you could identify two, three, five key points for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and then that's going to help your, your company and your sales team use that information effectively in the marketplace. So that's a key thing. Once we've got that in place, then I encourage clients to move on to where do you see that doubling period? What's the three to five year period? And we encourage people to be very specific. What is the gross revenue? What's your gross margin? What's your net margin? And then what are the three to five key activities that you'll have to focus on as a company to make that doubling happen? Once that's in place, then we back down to the 12 months. What is your 12-month objective? Specific revenue, specific gross margin, specific net margin. And then what are the three to five key activities that you need to be doing as a company that's going to allow you to achieve your goals. If you can accomplish just those three to five things in 12 months, your goals will be achieved. What are those? Be specific. Three to five years, 12 months, and then quarterly, you're always going to be identifying revenues, gross margins, net margins. And when you identify the three to five key activities, that's a what. Then you need to identify who's going to do it and by when. So whether it's three to five years doubling, 12 months or quarterly, identify the three to five key activities of what has to happen, who's responsible, 
And Marcus, you and I know, if we put two names down, we means nobody's responsible. One name can be there and have a specific time for when that's going to be done. Absolutely. I always tell people that goals without dates and times are wishes. I call them dreams. I think we're on the same page. If there's one thing that entrepreneurial companies are not good at doing, it's recognizing and celebrating success. So you need to identify what will your company do to acknowledge the 12 months success. In advance, identify that. And the same thing with the quarterly objectives. What are you doing on a quarterly basis? I'll give you an example. Our business, we've got a very good, solid business around here, but it's four people. We all get along very well. Our quarterly celebrations involve going to a small local town that we enjoy. We might go hiking. We might go on a wine tour. We might go see a show. We might go watch a baseball game. We'll go out for a really nice meal and then have fun in the evening, sleep overnight in a hotel or a B&B, enjoy a nice brunch the next day, and then back to our families the rest of the day. So that's an example of how we choose to celebrate our quarterly success. And we want to encourage our clients, when you put all this effort in, you've got to celebrate. Just like your winning football teams, when they win, your towns, they throw them a big parade and they celebrate. Companies need to do the same thing. Fair point. Okay, so once you've done the planning, the next step is designing your people. Now, this in the process that we operate, it's not about looking at the people that you have at the moment. It's about looking forward to the future. Why is it so important to ignore the people that you have at this stage when you're designing the people and their roles? Yeah, that's a great point. One of the, one of the things that we encourage our clients in creating their strategic plan is to create a three to five year organizational chart and to identify the roles and responsibilities that will be necessary without putting any people's names attached to it. Marcus, we've heard this before. Sometimes the people that got us here won't get us there. It could be the CEO. I've had a couple of clients that realized, you know, they started the business, they grew the business, but they didn't want to run or operate it. And they, in fact, did hire CEOs. One person put themselves into a VP of research and development because they just love developing brand new products. Another one of my clients had created another spinoff business, and he realized he loved starting entrepreneurial ventures. But once it was mature, it was boring to him. So he found somebody to come in to run his mature, profitable business, and he invested his time in the entrepreneurial startup. I don't know if you've ever read it, The One Thing You Need to Know by Marcus Buckingham. Yes. Fabulous book. And one of the key messages that he says is hire people whose strengths make your weaknesses irrelevant. And I think this is really critical. But before you go into who you've got, you have to design those roles, those positions. So talk me through the process that people need to go through in order to design the position for the future. You know, that's a great question. When you start to think about what does that future organizational chart look like? Let's just pretend there's a a vice president of sales that will be required that doesn't exist today. The first thing you need to be thinking about is what will be the results expected of that position? So create some specific results. Then you need to be looking at, well, how will we know in advance whether those results are happening? You know, at Sandler, we call those leading indicators. 
So identify some key activities that must be happening under the vice president's sales. And then what will the key functions be? It'll be things like hiring, growing, developing, leading. So you need to be thinking through those three activities in that order to identify a position of the future that you don't have today. So once you've designed those positions, then you'd look at the people that you do have. What's the process you're going through there? Are you looking at them to see whether they can grow or develop or to replace them? Why are you doing it? And what's the process you go through in order to evaluate their fit? Well, it probably depends a lot on how big of a leap you're making and where, where you are in that, in that stage of growth. If I was in year one, anticipating in year three or four, I was going to need a vice president of sales, I'd simply be giving the entire sales team challenges that will allow us to achieve our 12-month goals. And anybody who really outperforms their goals could be either in revenue generation or in, in a collaborative fashion. So that sales and marketing and sales and operations and sales and finance are working well together. And that they've taken an interest in not just themselves, but the team or company doing well. Those would be individuals that I'd start to pay closer attention to and give them new challenges to see whether they're up to future ambitions and opportunities. Let's pretend I'm in year two, closer to year three or four, when I believe somebody's going to need to come on board. I'm a huge believer in using independent behavioral assessment tools, specifically the Divine Inventory and Extended Disc. We can evaluate their current capabilities, but we can also evaluate, will they be appropriate for that other position? Marcus, I'm sure you've heard the expression, Peter's Principle, where you've been promoted to your level of incompetency. If you were to just ask people, would you like a promotion? Everybody loves the prestige, the acknowledgement, generally more money. But if they can't do the role, you've done the company and that individual disservice because you're going to promote somebody who can't succeed, which means you're probably going to remove that person down the road, which is just a terrible issue for the company because you probably lost a great resource. So I would be using assessment tools to help determine, is this a candidate for that new role? With our clients, whenever we take them on, we assess them and we also talent match them for those prospective future roles because we want to start the development really early. What I see people do very often is a vacancy arrives or arises because someone leaves, say, in a management position, and then they promote somebody who's a perfectly decent salesperson, but they're not cut out to be a manager. And you end up getting a double whammy because you lose a good salesperson, you gain an atrocious manager who does what they think good management is. And they don't really have the wiring for it the aptitude or the desire. In one of our clients, they've got a large sales team and we've run what's called a talent match to identify which of their salespeople are capable of or show the right kind of potential and hardwiring to move into more senior positions, into channel sales, into channel chief position, into management positions, into operations and so on. And as a result of that, we've been able to give them 12 to 24 months ramp up. And so, for example, in management, I don't want a salesperson who's never trained or coached people to go straight into management because I think coaching is the second most important thing that they do after recruitment. So I want them involved in getting and interviewing candidates. I want them to get them involved in the onboarding of new hires. 
I want to get them involved in coaching junior salespeople. I want them to be capable before they get into the job so that they can hit the ground running. And that's been a really fundamentally important part of their business. What that's meant is that they're able to get managers into a position where they hit the ground running. They don't have to wait for three, six, nine, 12 months for them to get up to speed because that holds the whole business back. And that can delay the vision and the execution of the plan. So, Andrew, tell me this then, process. I know you're a big fan of process. I've learned to love it. I have to admit, for the first 17 years of my career, I saw it as somehow limiting my creativity. But what I realized was having systems and processes set you free. And within them, you can be as creative as you like. It's the syntax and the the structure that matters more often than not, rather than the meticulous minutiae and detail. Talk to me about process. I think you've you've hit a bang on there, Marcus. And I'm a very competitive person. So if I think this is an opportunity, I want to make sure that I know what to do, have the confidence to repeat success and win more frequently. So there's a number of processes that I think companies should really be thinking about. I'll just describe them first, and then we can walk through a couple of them if you like. Please. One is, does the sales team have a documented sales process? When I start working with new clients, I've never seen one. So what is the documented sales process? Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing is, we've got to create an effective client onboarding life cycle. How long do you keep your clients for? What are the interactions that need to happen between our company and the client through that life cycle? Can I just make a point there? If you are one of these people who is uh, wooed by the glamour of new business, take, the, take stock of this. The latest research on this is it can cost anywhere between six and 25 times more to sell to a new customer than to an existing customer. What you keep matters more than what you make. Profit for sanity, revenue for vanity. That's an excellent point. And the client onboarding roadmap, if you will, the life cycle to have, that's got to be well understood by everybody in the company. Because everybody that touches your clients has an opportunity to impress or to irritate. And if not everybody understands it, there's going to be a problem. The other area that we see that is helpful is sales to operations and operations to finance. You know, if sales can be a machine and bring in new business, but operations can't keep up, well, that was a management problem because they should have anticipated that. Sales are selling deals based on financial terms that do not allow the finance department to achieve their financial objectives that have been developed in your strategic plan, then that's a problem having well-documented sales to operations to finance. And then as you were talking about, Marcus, in terms of keeping your clients, I'm very big on encouraging clients to have a review process that makes sense for them. So for some people that have very, very long-term engagements, that might be once a year. For those that might have one or two-year engagements with their clients, that's a bare minimum every six months. Personally, in our business, We want to sit down quarterly with our clients to review how we're doing it. We call that a reconner process. So reconner is standing for sitting down with your client and asking the client to remind, remember, or review why did they become a client. And then ask for direct client feedback, E for evaluate. 
The only constant in business and life is change. So C, changed. What has changed in your client's business? What has changed in your business? And quite frankly, nothing has to have changed in your business. But unless your clients are buying everything possible they could from you, this is an opportunity using third-party stories to talk about how other clients are buying other products or services from you, and they're enjoying that. So the C is for change. If your change conversation leads to something, then O is the opportunity. What specific opportunity should we be discussing? N is next steps. What are the next steps to progress this opportunity? And Marcus, I don't know if this is only a Canadian problem. You know, maybe we learned it from you Brits. But in Canada, when we receive compliments, and this recon process is highly complimentary, Canadians say, thank you, and then move on. Well, if you are a Sandler sales client, you know that when you've received a compliment, you should accept it and then ask for a referral. The reconner, the last R stands for referral. It is a highly engaging activity. It retains clients. And in the event that your client is upset at something, you now have an opportunity to proactively change it. And I say in our management client program and in our sales program all the time, nobody's perfect and I'm not perfect either. But as a company, if we think we made a mistake, we'll own up to it and we'll take action and we'll circle back to make sure the client's happy with whatever we resolved it to be. I believe successful companies are those that accept responsibility for mistakes and then do something about it. And that will strengthen your customer relationship. So that's the reconner. When you were talking about that sales finance and operations roadmap and documented process and the experienced customers have, I think what's really important and people don't seem to grasp it is that customer experience isn't customer complaints. Customer experience is any touch, whether it's your marketing, whether it's what other people say, it's how they've treated, it's the perception they have when they walk through your office door. The problem I see for a lot of organizations is they don't put the customer at the heart and center of everything that they do. And I know this wasn't what we planned, but I'm hoping you can talk to me about how you can create a culture that is so focused on customer experience that they cannot go anywhere else, that when they talk to other people, they are raving fans. Even if you've messed up, they love you. One exercise that I think is invaluable, and we've used it around here, is looking at the life cycle, the customer value life cycle to you and your business. We currently enjoy a five-year average client life cycle, which I believe is maybe three times more than the average of Sandler training operations globally. And so when we sit down and look at, you know, what was year one revenue, year two, year three, year four, how many introductions and referrals did those happy clients provide? And what did that generate? It is an immense number. And it's obviously a lot easier to keep happy clients happy. And so then we talk about who's interacting with it from the director of first impressions. And just as an example of that, in the reception of our business is a big TV above the receptionist desk. And whenever a client or a prospect comes through the door, it has a welcome to their company and their company colors with the names of the people that are coming to visit. And there's not one 
person, prospect or client that hasn't commented on what a lovely touch that is. So that is the director of first impressions responsibility around here. She knows that's important and I've shared with her the positive comments. So that's an example of one small thing that's making a big difference. Our director of client experience, helping our clients better understand assessments, better utilize assessments. She's proactive, she's a great listener, and she's invested in her knowledge of both Extended Disc and Divine, and she's able to sit down with our clients however they choose. Some clients would like to do that face-to-face. Some are using Zoom technology. Others, it's just over the telephone. It's the client's choice. And Melissa understands the importance of that to their business and to ours. And then on the sales team, it is not just me. It's a team approach around here to training, to consulting, to coaching. Everybody needs to understand that a positive experience is going to maintain that. And then secondly, I'm sure using this in your business and with your clients, Marcus, the Sandler Care Program. K stands for which accounts do you want to keep? What is your target ideal client you'd like to attain? Are there any accounts that you'd like to recapture? And then are there accounts you think that you can expand? We do this on an annual basis, looking at the clients that, who are our average five-year clients? Because maybe somebody isn't generating a ton of cash to us this year, but over a three-year period has. Everybody needs to treat that person as if it was the revenue that sparked our attention the first time. That's an exercise that we share in our annual planning, in our quarterly planning, just reminding everybody around here who's super duper important to our business and how all of our experiences, interactions are going to influence whether they stay or leave. And the sales team knows how much effort it takes to bring in new clients. And it's a lot easier to expand business and retain it. Absolutely. So back to process then. Why is it that so many entrepreneurs resist process? Well, I think you said it earlier. They think it restricts their creativity. They think what's made them successful is their ability to change on a dime. Well, if you're very entrepreneurial, you might even be a little ADD. You might come up with a bright, shiny object each and every day. Well, my guess is at least half of your team, your support team in particular, they don't like change. They don't understand why it was needed. And it actually can reduce their motivation to do a great job. So entrepreneurs are wired for excitement and sitting down and conducting a workshop internally or even hiring somebody like you or I to facilitate a workshop to create a structured process. That's not top of mind. But as soon as an entrepreneur realizes the value of retaining clients, creating efficiency and consistency, you know, it's like any manufacturing company, it doesn't have to be manufacturing, but certainly manufacturing companies have gone through lean. The whole purpose of that is to develop consistency and standards and to make new employee onboarding easier to do. So I can see why entrepreneurs resist it, but those that understand that running an efficient business requires structure, those are the ones that are winning in the game. Have you read anything by Mike Michalowicz? Profit First, Clockwork, Pumpkin Plan? I love Profit First. I share it with many, many clients. Excellent. Well, one of the things that Mike talks about in Clockwork is documenting your systems and processes and have the people who are responsible for implementing them 
to document it and also be responsible for simplifying it. And one of the things he suggests is that you video the person doing it, can be just done on the back of your phone, and then that is put into an onboarding file so that if somebody gets hit by a bus or they take someone on who's new, the process is there and it's de-skilled and it's moved down the food chain so that more and more time can be spent, well, less time can be spent by the owner or the manager doing and more decisions and more delegation go down the chain of command and the owner and the manager can spend more time in design and strategy and planning. And it strikes me that the companies that really grow well are the ones who've mastered this, who've mastered the whole planning piece, systematization, and making sure that processes within the business can be replicated and scaled. So my question on this is, what happens if you don't put these processes in place, if you don't plan effectively? You're not profitable. And a lack of processes means... Every employee, particularly as you're growing and bringing in new people, new people bring old ways to your company. By the way, those old ways that may have worked at another company might not fit your culture. And if we're both doing the same job in terms of responsibility for output, but we have totally different ways of doing it, you might be 50% more efficient than me. And yet perhaps we're being paid about the same amount of money. That is horrendous for the company. There's a huge waste of opportunity there. What's really interesting, because of the work that I'm doing around channels, I'm spending a lot of time looking at the managed service provider systems integrate and value-added reseller market. And 96% of all managed service providers across the globe cannot scale above 10 people. They've got processes for dealing with customer support and technical tickets for solving IT problems, but they don't have those other processes to help them grow the business. And they get sucked into doing the job day to day. They're interrupted all the time. And they seem to have created this culture of learned helplessness where people have to come to the boss. They become a bottleneck. And what I'm increasingly realizing is that without those systems and processes across sales, finance, and operations, the wheels are going to come off. So what is it that compels people to get out of their comfort zone? Maybe they were a good technician. They've got great processes for the operation side of things. But then to put the processes in across the board. You know, Marcus, I think it's something we talked about at the beginning of this show. What is the vision for your company? Within Canada, 75% of Canadian businesses are nine employees or less. That is a huge percentage. And I'm guessing that most industrialized nations are not that much different than the Canadian statistics. And the reason being is that the entrepreneur cannot see their business where the entrepreneur is not the center of every activity. They haven't invested in systems and processes. And I I would suggest it's because they haven't envisioned a larger organization. They haven't dreamed it. They haven't believed in it and they haven't wanted it. So the business is performing exactly as it was planned. And many prospects that I sit down with me and say, how can you say that, Andrew? I don't have a plan. I said, exactly. (laughs) I could see where that was headed. I mean, what I'm hearing here is ego is the enemy. If you can't get out of your own way, you're going to keep your business small. I would agree with that. 
measurement. Let's talk about measuring performance and the metrics that matter. You mentioned leading indicators and lagging indicators right at the top of the show. Do you mind going into a little bit more detail, particularly around scaling the sales side of the business? Absolutely. So let's use a a simple example. You want to double the business and let's pretend it's three years. So you've got specific numbers. Three years is too far out for people to really be focused on. So what is the one-year goal? When we work with clients to create a sales growth strategy, which is separate from a strategic business plan, a sales growth strategy, one of the components is going to be looking at how do you break down lagging and leading indicators? Let's pretend a business wants to be $5 million in 12 months' time. Well, the first question is, what is your current book of business, your current client base that you expect will stay with you for the next 12 months? And let's pretend that's $2 million. So $5 million minus $2 million is $3 million of brand new business the sales team needs to bring in. Well, now, what are the types of deals or transactions that the company engages in? You know, in Sandler, we talk about different sizes of transactions in terms of rabbits, deers, bears, and elephants. And they have different characteristics, one of which is average deal size. So then we get the client to break down how many rabbits, deers, bears, and elephants will the sales team need to achieve to hit that 12-month goal? Then we ask them, well, what's your closing rate of those different size of transactions? So if they need hypothetically five elephants, and if they have a 50% close rate, well, now they need to have 10 final fulfillment step meetings. And if they need to have, let's pretend, 15 second meetings to get to 10 fulfillment meetings, okay, they need to do that. And then if they need, let's say, 20 first meetings to get to 15 second meetings to get to 10 fulfillment meetings to get to five transactions, then we need to ask ourselves, well, how many conversations do we need to even get those 20 first appointments? And then we need to ask the sales team, well, what's the prospecting activities, both variety and quantity necessary per year to get those number of transactions? And then we break those down into quarterly, monthly, weekly, even daily. So in this exercise, we've started with the result desired in 12 months time, $5 million. We remove business that we have an 80% or higher confidence is going to be there anyhow, $2 million. Now we need $3 million of brand new business. So some of the leading indicators are the number of rabbits, deers, bears, and elephant transactions. Some of the other leading indicators are your sales metric ratios. As you go from closed deals to deals presented in standard terms, fulfillment meetings. If you had a second meeting to get to fulfillment, how many second meetings? How many first meetings to get to a second meeting? How many first conversations to just to get to that meeting? And then the variety and quantity of prospecting necessary. Those are all leading indicators. And so sales management, whoever wears that hat, needs to be helping the sales team know that if they do their activities daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, then they will achieve the results. If they're not doing the leading indicators activity, then they're on Hope Island, but the business <laughs> will magically appear. And those are not our clients. You've really made case for developing a cookbook, a behavioral recipe book. 
And I think the point that I want people to take away from this is selling is 90% science and 10% art. And sales is a learned skill. No one pops out of their mother's womb able to sell. They're able to maybe get fed and uh, clothed and kept warm and cuddled. But that's pretty much the limit of their capability. They have to learn this stuff. And one of the problems that I see is that particularly with people who've got a closed mind or who are veterans and they've been around the block a few times, that they resist this kind of organization and structure. And they refer to it as micromanagement and nannying. How do you sell that type of change to an established sales force? Some people that are used to doing what they've always done, that don't have goals for a brighter tomorrow for themselves and their families, they don't like change. So the first question is working with, quite honestly, the president, the owner, the CEO, the managing director, and asking them, are you able to identify a gross margin per salesperson? And when they can, this conversation's a lot easier. When they can't, well, that's homework step number one. Because it's been my experience that the people that you just described, Marcus, they might have, have a top line number that's satisfactory, but often it's not at good gross margins. They're taking easy business, not the preferred business. And if they have, as a company, an effective compensation plan, then that salesperson who's not contributing the gross margins that's required to feed the growth of the business, that should negatively impact their compensation. So we have to sit down with people and ask them, what goals do you have for yourself and your family? And see whether we can get them to think differently about what's possible for their future. To identify for them that if they create better transactions, better gross margins, that they'll be able to provide for themselves and their families in a way they just envisioned. And we help people create vision boards so that people buy into what they want first and foremost, and then secondly, the company. If we can get people to create a better vision for themselves and their families, then we can help them walk through the science of selling and ask them if they have children, did you want to go to that dance recital? Did you want to see your child's football game? Was it important that you saw your child in the play? Because if you're working harder, harder, harder just to hit your numbers, then you're missing out on the opportunity to work smart and to have a more balanced work-life balance. I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast, but one of my heroes was a guy called Carl von Clausewitz, who wrote a book called On War. And all the major military academies use it as a tactical and strategic Bible. But the thing that I really liked about von Clausewitz was his philosophy around recruitment, that you should recruit officers for high intelligence and laziness. And the reason is minimum effort, minimum loss of life. And I think salespeople should be the same. I don't think sales is a marathon. I think what it is, is lots of short bursts with lots of rest, planning, and contemplation in between. So that when you do have to exert force, you exert it very on a very narrow focus with massive overwhelming force. And you manage to move forward all the time or you get out quickly. And I'm really curious in terms of recruiting salespeople, because I know this is a key element of your business and mine. When you're advising your clients around the process of recruitment, because I think that is one of the most fundamentally important, what do you teach them there? 
that is the second most common service that our clients are asking for. I think hiring B plus A players is difficult for any position, but sales is harder because the average salesperson is persuasive. They present themselves well, and many, many hiring manager has been fooled. <laughs> so, you know, the first place is you've got to start by describing what does Mr. and Mrs. Utopia look like? Within Sandler terminology, this is spending time looking at the search model. What skills, experiences, attitudes, results, cognitive capabilities, and habits do you want somebody to bring to the table? What are the job functions of this position? What's the hiring matrix look like? It's a triangle of three sides. What are the five to seven key performance indicators that are critical for success? What are the winning attitudes for this position? I always chuckle internally when somebody says, I'm looking for an independent self-starter team player. I ask them, <laughs> how many people did you want to hire? <laughs> independent self-starters, often not team players and vice versa. And then finally, the bottom of that triangle, you know, what's the cultural makeup that you're looking for? These are cultural values. And we started talking earlier about strategic plan and values. This is where values come into play. And I like using an extended disc here. What is the, the disc styles of the current team? And are you looking to complement or contrast that team? So spend the necessary time thinking about what is it that you want out of this position in terms of activity, performance, contributions, before you have any candidates in front of you. Be analytical before you become emotional. Once that's in place, you've got to start recruiting. And obviously, people are used to providing resumes. You know, one of the greatest pieces of art employee candidates can provide. But besides that piece of art, have them complete the divine inventory questionnaire that will provide a one to 99 job competency evaluation of the match. We're trying to help our clients hire B plus A players. So we encourage them. If somebody doesn't score at least 70, move on, ignore that person. When that's gone well, conduct a 10 to 15 minute short telephone interview of the five to seven key performance indicators that you already described in your hiring matrix. When that's gone well, then ask them to complete the extended disc questionnaire to see whether their disc style is what you're looking for in terms of complementing or contrasting your current team and what will be successful in that role. As soon as you've got some good quality candidates, now it's time to start the face-to-face -face interview process. And Divine Inventory makes the first interview very easy because they provided independent behavioral questions to help the interview be more effective. When that's gone well, we're looking for a skill test. Let's pretend this is a sales position that part of your job is going to be to bring in new opportunities, whether it's to identify and approach new channel partners or whether it's a direct sales model. We encourage them to be given your 60-second commercial a week in advance. Have them learn it. Give them a prospecting list. Put them in an office. Give them a phone and see how many times they'll pick up that phone in 60 minutes. If it's not acceptable, move on. That was a great skill test. If they did do well, then you need to bring them in for a thorough multi-person interview that you're going to start at their academic years, their high school, any college, university, post-grad. And then looking at the last 15 years of employment and asking consistent questions as to why they took that job. What was the position? What was the compensation? How was the comp compensation structured? What did they do well? What accomplishments? What could they have done better? Why did they leave? What attracted them to the next position? 
looking at the last 15 years, this process will show you a history, a history of success, a history of mediocrity. And if you found mediocrity, then M stands for move on. <laughs> when you've found that success, now's the opportunity to be interviewing their previous supervisors over the last 15 years. I don't want somebody's three references of people that say, this person not only walks on water, they run on water. <laughs> we want to be interviewing their previous supervisors to see whether those supervisors say the same thing that this person just told you in the interviewing process. And when that's gone well, make sure your employment offer is well-written. It's describing the results and leading indicators of success. It's explaining your onboarding plan of how you're going to help them succeed. And the compensation plan is extremely well-detailed. So there's no ambiguity of what success will mean to that person so that when they do succeed, or if it takes them a little bit longer, they'll know what to come of it. And finally, management's responsibility to do a good onboarding job Absolutely. with their new hires. That's a nine-step process that we help our clients with. And many, many of our clients have said, the reason why they've been able to double or triple their company is not just because we help them with a great strategic plan. It's not just because we help them become better managers, leaders themselves. It's not just because the sales team is more effective at prospecting, qualifying, closing, retaining, expanding business, but it's because they were able to scale more profitably with B plus A players who we all know will contribute much more for less money. And that helps the net profits of the company, which then can be reinvested in the company to the shareholder and to the staff. Mike McCullowitz often uh, refers to the 1A equals 3Bs, 1B equals 3Cs, 1A equals 9Cs. It's worth paying an A player three times what you're paying your C players or, or all of your other reps, because you're going to get nine times the value out of them. And it's not unusual. I mean, when you look at the typical bell curve distribution, 80% of your revenue is going to come from the top 20% of your reps. It sounds harsh, yeah. but there is an, a really good case for getting rid of the bottom 80% and using that money to recruit more B plus and A players and onboard them, train them, develop, <laughs> coach them. Because what you want is profit. What you keep matters so much more than what you make. And what I see in the technology space in particular, because people are rushing towards this exit, and so few of them actually achieve this sort of unicorn status. They don't even achieve elephant status, let alone whale. And as a result, there are so many companies that grow revenue, but they have nothing to show for it. So it feels like a pointless exercise. Why do people do this? Why are they seduced by the idea that they're going to get this big money? When instead, what they could be doing is building a highly profitable business that they could sell for a decent profit. If only they made good money, they hired good people, they had good processes, and they were able to scale in a manageable way. Well, it comes back to how we started this session. Do they have a strategic plan? And the unfortunate answer most times is no, no, they do not. And if they follow the Sandler organizational excellence strategic planning process that we've talked through here today, Marcus, they would have 10-year objectives, three to five-year objectives, and one-year objectives of revenue, gross margin, and most importantly, net margin. And if the company is not able to create a profit, then they've created complexity, they've created stress, 
and they've created turnover in their people. Fair point. What are the books that you recommend people read, either around structure and uh, process or other great sales books? You've, you've already mentioned The Road to Excellence. Any others that you'd suggest? There's another great book written by Bill Bartlett on sales coaching. Absolutely. You mentioned it earlier. You know, the best way to help your great employees that you care about have greater satisfaction in life and in performance that on your payroll is to help them coach more effectively. So that is a perfect book. And for sales professionals that are asking themselves, how can I work smarter, not just harder? Get the book, Asking Questions by Antonio Garitas. It is one of the best books out there for learning the power of listening after asking a great question will generate better sales success. I've interviewed both Antonio and Bill Bartlett. So the Bill Bartlett interview is on my podcast and it's called the number one, what's the number one mistake every bad sales manager makes? And the one by Antonio, I'll add to the bottom. I can't remember the title. Both of them are fantastic interviews, really insightful. So Andrew, last question then. If you were to look back to your 20 years younger self and you knew now, uh, knew then what you know now, what advice would you give him? That's a great question. And as you were describing earlier, how you would properly onboard a salesperson to develop them to become a better sales manager when that opportunity was presented. 20 years ago, I asked for what I received. A sales team managed a business unit of $300 million that was underperforming and needed to be turned around. And I was a hard charger. I was strategic. I was competitive. And we did that, but we did that at a cost because I didn't have the soft skills of leadership and management that I needed. And had I had those soft skills, I think we would have achieved success faster than I did. I wish I had learned, I wish I had been coached, I wish I had been mentored around improve your leadership management skills because optimizing your team will generate way more results than Andrew Wall working as hard as he did. Great advice. Working harder is dumber. Working smarter means you get you do less and you delegate more and you get the best out of your people. I think managers' job descriptions contain these words. Hire the best people and get the best out of them and help them achieve their goals and objectives. That's pretty much it. I've found the title for the other podcast, which is Your Credibility Comes from the Questions You Ask. I'll put those in the link on the blurb on this podcast. Andrew, any final words before we hang up? Marcus, this is a great opportunity for your audience to be learning at their pace while they're driving, while they've got their own downtime. I appreciate the opportunity to share my expertise with your audience. Wonderful. Andrew Wall, thank you very much. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the Organizational Excellence Program, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com or pick up the phone. I'm quite approachable some of the time. My number is 07515-937-221. And if you'd like to crash a class, either with me or anywhere around the world where we have a Sandler training center, then ping me an email or DM me on LinkedIn and put crash a class in the subject line and I'll arrange for you to go as my guest. No cost, no strings. 
Thanks a lot, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Marcus.